Hello and welcome to the Room of Lives. This is your host, Neil. In this part of my conversation with Pace Davis, he talks about being the first human diagnosed with a kind of congenital myopathy, a neuromuscular disease that had previously only been studied in other animals. He describes its causes and effects and how it shaped his life to be brought up without any accommodations for the disease. If you enjoy listening to this conversation, consider supporting me by donating dye or ether to abhranil.eth. That's A-B-H-R-A-N-I-L dot E-T-H. So, uh, for our final two topics, uh, we wanted to talk about, so this is new, I hadn't heard about this before, is the health and wellness aspect. So tell me a little bit more about this diagnosis that you had got when you were 29. 29? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's a, a congenital myopathy is an inherited myopathy, and they can be inherited or right. It was like you could be the first generation to have the mutation. Um, but then you would pass it on after, mm. or you could get it from like X-linked, which is like mothers mm. pass on through the X chromosome. Um, there are a lot of different kinds of myopathies, um, and um, and I have one that that happens with a variation of the um, SRPK3 gene, which is a protein kinase gene, mm. um, and uh, and um, uh, I was diagnosed loosely as a child, kind of diagnosed, re-diagnosed as an adult, but not finally. And I finally found a specialist who was like, kind of very current on research or whatever. Mm-hmm. Else. And so I got this diagnosis. And so what it means is a, and so what it means is a is, um, you know, to get not trying to get too complicated. They had studied mice and pigs, and mice and pigs who didn't have this gene or had it called like uh, SRPK3 null mice. Um, had like a muscular um, uh, deficits and cardiovascular deficits, pigs as well. Mm. Um, and so I, that's what I was born with. And, and, and I'm the first person. So the literature didn't actually say like, you have the SRPK3 myopathy. It was saying, this is the only gene variation we found when we did a total, um, uh, what's it called? Like a gene sequencing of you. Is that I submitted uh, my uh, DNA mm. to have genes being done or whatever done uh, a gene examination and that's the only thing that flagged was that we have studies showing this in mice and pigs so this is really the only thing we can find that would make sense mm. and so then I became the first person found with this gene variation the first human found with this gene variation doesn't mean the first one never exists with it the first mm-hmm. person found um, and the way that takes effect is that um, so cardiovascularly I actually so prior to you any literature surrounding this mutation was in non-human like in, uh-huh. in other animals only mice and pigs okay yeah okay. so this as as a, as its own specific disease did not exist for humans yes okay yeah um, and so the way it works is generally as um so um, there's a couple of things one um, in muscle fibers um, then the nuclei live on the edge of the fiber like they live um, on the edge of the cell right um, and then they go to the middle to repair and then they go back to the edge of the, the fiber and they stay there um, when um, if you look at like a diagram of my muscle fibers from a biopsy mm. under a microscope um, they find that the nuclei often live in the center 
Mm. The structure of muscle fibers is usually hexagonal. So it looks like a beehive, right? Mm. So it's like this, it's like this beehive chain link of fibers. Um, and then you'll find in a lot of my fibers that the shape of the cell is actually somewhat ovular or circular and they're kind of blobbed against each other instead of like really perfectly positioned next to each other in mm. this like in this beehive state mm. so it's a less efficient arrangement mm. so it's like an energy inefficient arrangement right mm. and the same thing with the nuclei but it's energy inefficient so that so that they have to go to the edge of the cell and they go back to the center and they stay there so there's like an energy inefficiency happening in speed right mm. so like producing force seems to be related to this inefficiency right mm. And then the third thing is that, um, do you know much about fiber typing, like muscular fiber typing? No, no, no. So there's uh, basically three um, fiber types. There's a, there's like, and I'm, I'm gonna, I, I feel like I'm gonna get this wrong, but I believe it's one, two A, and two X. Mm -hmm. And I haven't read much about this in, since I got my diagnosis. So it's been about two years. Mm -hmm. um, but um, about this specific aspect of it. So the average person, they think there's not, and there's some research on fiber typing, but there's not a tremendous amount. Um, mm -hmm on like athletes and other stuff. There's there's a new study that just came out that's pretty interesting, but they think the average person has this, uh, these basically type one to type two fibers. And depending on the muscle, like the quadricep muscle might be different than the bicep, but you have about 50-50, hmm. type two A and type one. Type two A are your fast switch. They produce force. They create like a, um, they're the ones that like would be responsible for like the sprint or the jump, right? And then type one is this, is this kind of slow twitch um, kind of endurance fiber. And I think traditionally people have thought of them as like, one is like going on a long run and one is going mm -hmm. on a sprint. There's some, there's some aspect to that, but maybe the best way to think of it is just like one is this, or, or one of the ways that I've learned to think about it is that what we find is that in type 2A fibers, that, that almost all muscular growth in people comes from recruitment of type 2 fibers. So type 1 recruitment doesn't usually result in hypertrophy and growth, right? Mm -hmm. or, or like, Neural neural connection changes. So, so the, the the slow muscle is the one that is associated with growth. No, the fast. The fast one. The okay. fast powerful. Okay, okay, okay. And then there's this other type. I believe it's two X, and that is this fiber type that can actually shift. Mm. So maybe like I don't know five percent something like that of your muscle fibers are slow, mm. and they can become fast through recruitment. Mm. So if you repetitively train for fast twitch, you will actually make them more fast twitch. Mm. So um, anyway, that's. Kind of an introduction. There's actually a new study that was just published that's really interesting, where they studied elite level Olympic weightlifters, mm. and they found incredibly high type two fiber dominance. But type two fibers didn't always predict performance, but they did find that like they found up to eighty five percent type two fibers in certain athletes, and they found that type two fibers increased with training time and um, uh uh like years trained and performance peak. So like Olympic level athletes had more type two fibers than national level athletes. Mm. And one of the really interesting things too that draws into this idea of like, we have this idea that type one fibers, a small percentage can change. And this paper doesn't say, like they're not gonna conclude this, but it draws into the really interesting question of, can we convert over 20 years of training or 15 years of training, can we actually convert higher than 5% or whatever of our, type, our fiber types to type two? So, that being said, so I was diagnosed with this disease, and I'm a very rare um, individual in that the the therapy suggested for congenital myopathies is practically nothing. Mm. Now, many of them are more severe than mine, but they don't tell you like you should exercise. They don't tell you that you should go to a PT necessarily. They basically, when I was a kid, they were just like, I don't know, uh, just that's life. Mm. 
And my parents took an interesting approach, which I can't imagine many parents taking, is they decided that they wouldn't inform my school and that I would be forced to participate in all activities mm-hmm. as if I didn't have a disease. Mm-hmm. Now, this made doing these activities very difficult, mm-hmm. but I was like, required to run every day. I was required to play sports, et cetera, et cetera. So I grew up using my body. And then when I was about 18, I picked up weightlifting. So I started lifting weights religiously basically from the age of like 18 so subjectively how, how how did it how does it feel like to have this disease are you just able to not exert as much force mm-hmm. as you see other people exerting or? yeah so like i can't run as long typically i can't run as fast mm-hmm. um when i was younger i was worse but i had really bad like cord- muscular coordination and stuff mm-hmm. and i've been so active that i've made up for a lot of the coordination deficits mm-hmm. i'm actually probably more coordinated than many people mm-hmm. but like as far as actual production of force mm-hmm. it's like almost impossible to produce the force of an average person mm-hmm. so it's funny because in some ways i'm actually more adequate at doing many things than many people mm-hmm. but if i were to go toe-to-toe on just simply strength with mm-hmm. almost any grown individual i would i would be it would be less mm-hmm. right and the muscles are disproportionately affected so like my calves mm-hmm. are less affected than my my proximal muscles which would be like my, my upper leg mm-hmm. my upper arms my mm-hmm. neck so those muscles are the weakest and they produce the least proportional force. Mm. Um, so I started lifting weights and I, and I think one of the things I found is that being active and lifting weights increased my quality of life significantly. Mm. Um, and so originally, so I should say that I've only had one period in my adult life where I didn't use my body like religiously, regularly, you know, two to four times a week. Mm-hmm. And the decline in my quality of life in the six months I was in the West Bank, mm-hmm. not using my body was so significant. Mm-hmm. I became so much weaker so much kind of more physically exhausted by certain things that it really concerned me. I saw like, you know, one, what would my life with my myopathy be like if I had been raised not to use my body? Would I be like wheelchair bound, right? Mm. Um, two, um, are there people out there with myopathies that have been discouraged from attempting to use their bodies rigorously because of a fear that rigorously using their body will cause a negative reaction? And now they are say wheelchair bound as a result of this because in in muscular dystrophy if you use your muscles it causes an actual chain reaction you're missing dystrophin protein and so therefore like a chain reaction happens when you use your muscles and they die right so it's like so there are conditions under which you actually don't want someone using their muscles because it'll speed up their death Um, that doesn't appear to be the case with mine And so, um, so I've used my body, uh, my whole this life. This specialist in Austin that finally did the exact diagnosis, did that person have any recommendations or? He actually recommended I don't lift weight. He, he like strongly recommended against it and he mm. strongly recommended against any concentric, uh, 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 like weight lifting, which is like really interesting. What um, is concentric? It's like the, the part where you bring it towards your way. Uh, like there's okay. like eccentric and concentric, mm. like drawing and then pushing away. Mm. Um, and then maybe the other one he measured again is isometric, which is like a hold. So if you do like a plank, you know, with your abs, that'd be isometric. It'd be like a static uh, hold. Um, but he, so he recommended strong against it, and I laughed in his face. And I was like, I'm, I'm 29, and I'm sitting in front of you. I'm literally living proof that nothing you're saying can be true. Because if it was, I would be dead. Right? If, if exercise was bad for me, if it caused me to die faster, I would yeah. be dead because I've been exercising aggressively for years. Yeah. And where was he getting this from? Because my understanding is that you were the first diagnosis. So he's just kind of extrapolating from other... So he's extrapolating from other myopathies, but it's also this really interesting question that comes up is if there's so little literature on myopathies mm. that it makes one wonder is if simply there have been no therapies tried that involve exercise. Mm. And so there's simply the fear mm. that as a doctor, you would be you could be harming your patient. And so to do nothing is preferable to harm, yeah. right? So like do no harm could, can often be interpreted as just hands off, right? Mm-hmm. 
Because like, a patient can't blame you for dying from their myopathy if they sit in their chair all day. Yeah. But if you tell them to exercise and they die faster, they could say that you did that, right? So that was kind of my impression of him. And so I undertook this idea that I had been lifting weights for several years. And I, uh, or for almost a decade at that point, or I guess over a decade at that point. And I took up Olympic weightlifting, which is explosive weightlifting. It's fast, right? Mm. It's moving movements over your head really quickly. Mm. It's moving movements off the ground really quickly. Um, and wanted to improve, improve my motor skills a lot. And I think I got a little bit stronger from it, but it was really interesting because I had this theory that um, that if I recruited my type 2 fibers, oh, that's the other thing I forgot mm. to mention. I'm disproportionately type 1. I'm like 75 to 85% type 1 mm. as opposed to like the 50-50 of the average person walking around. And so I thought if I, reported, if I recruited my type 2, then maybe I could create muscular growth. If I, so basically if I ate a very high-protein diet, and a caloric surplus created an anabolic environment, one in which muscle can grow in the average person, right? Mm -hmm. But like maybe even better in mm -hmm. my case. And then used fast type, fast rich fiber recruitment, they could actually create muscle that mm -hmm. in an environment otherwise that muscle would never naturally happen. Um, and it, and it's kind of still the jury's a little out. Like I got some, I actually did get stronger. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean not, I mean for me a large amount. For the average person, maybe not a significant increase. Um, but like I think so, health and wellness became years ago and has remained this kind of interesting um, uh, frontier for me because it's like directly affects my life. Mm. Although the things that I practice could apply to the average person. So if I can gain muscle with them, then the argument could be that anyone can gain muscle with them. Mm. But I think also they very specifically apply to my life and yes. recruiting yeah. muscle for my purposes. Mm -hmm. Thank you for joining us today in the Room of Lives. In the next and final part of my conversation with Pace, we talk about the roles of the various strategies for addressing depression, such as therapy, medicine, psychedelics, and meditation.